This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. China is a country of 1.4 billion people, but for most China watchers, there's only one who counts, and that's Xi Jinping, President of the People's Republic. Welcome to The Exchange from Reuters Breaking Views. I'm John Foley, and I've been talking with China watcher and expert Elizabeth Economy from the Council on Foreign Relations about her new book, The Third Revolution, Xi Jinping and the New Chinese State, published in May. Elizabeth, welcome to The Exchange, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, John. It's great to be here. So your new book, The Third Revolution, is coming out in May. I wondered if you could just walk us through what, for you, is China's third revolution? So the third revolution really is Xi Jinping's transformation of China's domestic uh, and foreign policies. If you look at what he's accomplished over the past five years, you find that he really has created almost a new model of Chinese politics. Uh, It's one that's both more insular and authoritarian at home, but also much more ambitious and expansive abroad. And it's called the Third Revolution, of course, because Mao Zedong really was responsible for the First Revolution, the creation of China, the People's Republic of China as the party state. And then Deng Xiaoping himself called his period of reform and opening up and a low-profile foreign policy the Second Revolution. So this is really a signal, Xi Jinping calling it the Third Revolution, that he is as transformative as these two previous leaders. So he's been president of China for coming on five years now. I think we've just passed the five-year mark since he became officially president. And I want to I peel back the layers a bit on, on this guy, because you actually met him, I think, in 2012. And, and from what I can gather, you found him fairly unremarkable. You said that he, you know, he didn't really break any new ground. So, so at what point did it become clear that something rather different was going on Well, I think if you look back uh, through Xi Jinping's rise uh, through the party ranks, really, you would never pick him out of a crowd. And you certainly would never assume that he would be quite so transformative as he's been. And in 2012, he stepped onto the stage when he was actually appointed general secretary first before uh, president uh, in 2012. Uh, He stepped onto the stage and he talked about corruption being the you know death of the Communist Party and the death of the Chinese state if it weren't addressed. He talked about having a prosperous society. And he talked about the rejuvenation of the great Chinese nation. These are all things that we've heard before. Nothing was actually new about what he said. I think what we couldn't anticipate is that he would actually begin to deliver on a number of these things. And the way that he would go about undertaking his reforms would be quite different from what we've seen before. But that's not necessarily all... A good thing, is it? Because the whole point of revolutions is that you know, they're not much fun to live through, potentially. And, and certainly a, a large part of your book describes some of the, the negatives that have come from Xi Jinping's new 
approach. He's kind of breaking several eggs to make his eventual omelette. So what, for you, what is he trying to achieve? And, like, and in what ways is he you know, cracking heads? Like, what are some of the n- negative externalities of this? So I think if you look inside China, certainly he has amassed an enormous amount of power. He's really moved away from the kind of collective leadership that was established by Deng Xiaoping in response to the chaos and tumult that was created by Mao Zedong by having too much power concentrated in Mao Zedong's hand, you know, Deng Xiaoping really did operate in the context of a collective leadership. And that sustained China, you know, for three or more decades. Now you have Xi Jinping who's reversed that, and he's amassed just an extraordinary amount of power in his own hands, you know, sits on top of all the most important leading committees and commissions that oversee the big areas like foreign policy and economic policy and cyber you know, security. He has uh, called on various parts of the bureaucracy to pledge their loyalty to him, not to the Communist Party, somewhat recreating a little bit of the cult of personality that we saw under Mao Zedong. He's also uh, pushed to have the party, the Communist Party, penetrate much more deeply into Chinese society and into the Chinese economy. Again, you know, if you look back to the Deng era, one of the hallmarks of Deng Xiaoping was reform and opening up. And Xi Jinping instead is reform and closing down. So you have the party committees now in the state-owned enterprises trying to make decisions in joint ventures and even private enterprises. He really wants to see the party dominate both the economy and society. And Xi Jinping has passed a lot of laws that make it much more difficult in many respects for foreign ideas, foreign capital, and certainly non-governmental organizations to participate in the life in China. Xi Jinping is being much more confrontational in a way, isn't he? How do you think about that? Should we be concerned? Well, I think that's one element of, of Xi Jinping's more assertive uh, foreign policy and the way that he approaches the international community that is quite different from his predecessors. I, I think the second is simply Xi Jinping seeing China or driving toward China uh, becoming a, a much more central player on the global stage. I was in Beijing a few weeks ago, and for the first time I heard a pretty prominent uh, member of the Chinese government say that China is a superpower. And, you know, China for a long time, you know, they would refer, Chinese refer to themselves as the largest developing country or an emerging power, a regional power. Under Xi Jinping, you started to hear major power, global power. And now we're hearing superpower. And I think we see it playing out in terms of its push to reclaim territory that it considers its sovereign territory, like South China Sea, Taiwan, you know, certainly eroding autonomy within Hong Kong. Uh, we see it through the Belt and Road Initiative, right? Very expansive program of interconnectivity. Uh, this is the idea of building infrastructure that spreads basically around the planet to export Chinese goods and ideas and... Exactly. And it started off largely as an infrastructure project, but we've seen that it's become so much more. You know, it's a mechanism to for China to take a larger security stake globally, uh, as well as to promote sort of a China model of development. When did it get so confident? When did China turn from being this faintly apologetic, rising kind of mini power into being a country that, as you you sort of say in the book, is basically exporting authoritarianism. Right. What was the tipping point for you? I mean, I think beginning in 2008, you know, and, and many Chinese will point to this moment in time with the global financial crisis hitting the United States, the same time as you had China hosting the Olympics, this big success. And by the way, Xi Jinping was the party official in charge of the Olympics. Uh, so that redounded quite well to, to, to him within the political system. But at the moment of the global financial crisis, there were a number of Chinese, both in the financial community and I would say in the security realm, who began to, s- to articulate that, in fact, China's moment had already come. It had come much sooner than they anticipated, and China was already surpassing the United States. So 
the U.S. relations with China and the U.S. to say that there, there has been friction would be a massive understatement. Now, these two countries together, they account for about a third of the world's GDP, so it matters a lot that they get along. How is that relationship going now? Because you, you clearly have a strong man politician in China. You also, of course, have a fairly strong man or would be strong man politician running the United States in the form of President Donald Trump. So how would you characterize the, that kind of strategic frenemy relationship? I think it's been you know, a fascinating shift over the past uh, year and a half, uh, or quite not quite year and a half since President Trump came to power. On the one hand, he clearly admires Xi Jinping and uh, feels a great gentleman. exactly feels a degree of commonality with him. And indeed, the two of them are both children of privilege. They both went around the elite down to the masses to kind of develop their, their popular base. And they both want to make their countries great again. So there are, in fact, some similarities between them. So President Trump, on the face of it, in a personal relationship, seems to want to engage very deeply with uh, President Xi Jinping. On the other hand, I think President Trump you know, came to power with two big ideas about Asia. You know, one was rebalancing bilateral trade deficits, feeling that the United States had gotten the short end of the stick, not just with China, but with Japan and Korea uh, as well, and, and even other Asian countries. And second, making progress on denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. That was, that was his sort of driving uh, ambition uh, in terms of foreign policy. So working with China on both those issues, it became clear that there was going to be a lot of progress and a lot of sort of steps backward as well. And I think at a certain point, uh, President Trump just decided enough is enough. The Chinese talk and talk when it comes to the trade. We're not seeing any action. President Trump is very much, as we know, a man of action and a deal maker. And he's impatient. And, you know, he promised that the bilateral trade deficit was going to be reduced and it expanded during his first year and again expanded during the first quarter. So things are not looking good for him. And he's got a base that he needs to appeal to. So I think there's a lot of friction on the trade front and, you know, just a sense that China's not doing what it promised to do. And I would say there's an enormous amount of surprise in China. So in talking to Chinese, both when I was in China and just yesterday, I was speaking with somebody from the Ministry of Finance and they are shocked they thought the relationship was looking pretty good about six, eight months ago. They did not anticipate that, you know, come January, President Trump was going to start threatening, you know, several rounds of tariffs uh, on Chinese goods. Uh, so I think it's been a shock to the Chinese system, which is not necessarily bad. The question now is, you know, is there a strategy for, you know, the off-ramps, right? Do we know how we de-escalate? Uh, because as you say, this relationship is enormously important, and you want it to work. And when the two sides can work together, as we did on climate change or on the Iran deal or working on e Ebola, uh, you can have very good outcomes. But one of the strange things is that although Trump, Trump's interests and, and the things he says are in many cases um, antithetical to what China's trying to achieve, there does seem to be a strange admiration for him. If you read the Chinese you know, state media, even when I talk to my Chinese friends, People kind of like the idea of Trump, and I don't know if it's because he's faintly cartoonish or because he just he's a guy who talks about getting deals done and being straightforward. And Obama, President Obama, who, of course, preceded him, was seen as being a bit more circumspect and, you know, went along with this idea that you don't mix business and politics, whereas Trump gets straight to the point. Well, I think different sectors of Chinese society have different understandings of President Trump. And I will say in the official uh, sort of uh, sectors, I think there was an appreciation for President Trump because 
yes, he was pursuing trade and North Korea, but at the same time, he seemed not to be interested in the United States uh, playing a significant role leading in Asia, for example. Or right? human rights, for example. So, or human rights, exactly. And so issues where there was a lot of contention be- during President Obama's time, those issues receded. And so I think they thought that was to their benefit. I think they also, as you say, see him in a little bit of a cartoonish way. When I was there, they were laughing about the fact that, you know, President Trump had initially made the statement that he wanted the trade deficit reduced by $1 billion instead of $100 billion. And they thought this was just hilarious. So I think, you know, among the broader Chinese society, you will definitely find admiration for President Trump as a deal maker, his brashness, uh, Trump Tower, the, you know, Ivanka, all this kind of thing, I think, yes, uh, feeds into a certain glamorous narrative as well. But within official circles, I think there's a slightly different perspective. Uh, on, the, on a kind of more, on, on a cultural level, how do you interpret the, the you talk about this in the book, um, the increasing anxiety within China or the hostility towards foreign influence and foreign forces. I, as a journalist, I was based there in the early years of Xi Jinping's uh, tenure, and you could tell that there was um, a mounting sense of distrust in Western ideas, culture. I mean, one example that you pick out in the book is the feminist five, these five um, feminist kind of activists who basically went missing and were, and were silenced. And right now we, we're having um, something similar going on in Beijing University. There are various protests going on because a student investigated a 20-year-old 20, 20 alleged rape case. And, that, and, and once again, there's lots of talk of hostile foreign forces trying to subvert China's interests. And yet, you know, the Me Too movement, for example, is spreading around China. People are talking about it. It's very hard to keep these influences out. So are they fighting a losing battle in trying to bottle up these incredibly powerful ideas that are infiltrating Chinese society from the West? I think ultimately uh, they are fighting a losing battle. They're going to have to pick and choose the battles. And I think the bar in the end is likely to be, does this truly threaten national security? Does it truly threaten the stability of the Communist Party, the leadership of the Communist Party? Uh, So if you look back over the past five years, uh, you can find hostile foreign forces being blamed for labor protests, being blamed, uh, you know, for... Uh, in, environmental information uh, being leaked to hostile foreign forces, right? Environmental NGOs, Western NGOs that have worked wi- in China for decades now coming under suspicion and attack. So almost any problem that China experienced, any social problem during the first five years of Xi Jinping's tenure, uh, at some point, one person or one element of the media would uh, attack it as uh, being derived from hostile foreign forces. But I think as you have these broader social movements, like the feminist movement, like LGBT rights, and the environment, I would say, as well. Uh, it will be very difficult uh, for the uh, administration of Xi Jinping to label this as coming from the outside in because it's so widespread, so broad-based, and there's a reality to it that cannot be denied. So I think um, you know these things can only threaten the leadership of the Communist Party if they're not addressed. And by quashing them, or trying to quash them, I think the leadership will create more problems uh, for itself than it already has. And the environment is a great example of this, right? Because you can literally see and smell and taste the problem. Anyone who's been to Beijing has seen the grey soup that hangs in the air. Um, And you, of course, have written a book about this too, The River Runs Black. How is China doing in tackling that that situation? Because it does seem to me that some cities are now cleaner. Coal uh, consumption is is now falling. Uh, Something is 
being done, right? I mean, you, Absolutely. there is progress. Absolutely. I think uh, it was a really interesting case study that I, I look at in the book of the trajectory of how the Xi Jinping leadership came to begin to address the environmental challenge. And it really was a groundswell of, of societal sort of protest via the internet that pushed them to begin to take action. Chinese leaders for decades have been talking about taking action on the environment, have recognized it as a very significant challenge. It has huge health implications for the Chinese people. It has uh, economic consequences. You know, anywhere from, you know, 3 to 12 percent of China's GDP, they say, is, is lost because of environmental degradation and pollution. So they know that it's a real problem. But this Xi government is really the first one to begin to tackle it. But at first, in 2012, 2013, they tried to put it off. Premier Li Keqiang saying, well, you know, it's been a long time making this environmental problem. It's going to take us a long time to solve it, too. But the Chinese people pushed and pushed. And then finally, I think the leadership recognized it had become an issue of legitimacy. And at that point, they needed to tackle it. And I have to say, at one level, I've been impressed uh, by what the government has managed to do. I really do believe this is the first Chinese leadership to take this issue seriously and to make progress. The progress is mostly... <laughs> Uh, in the wealthier coastal cities. Coal-fired plants continue to uh, be built. There's a temporary moratorium, but they continue to be built. China's exporting coal-fired power plants all over the world, and not the top-of-the-line coal-fired power plants that they uh, put in in China, but subcritical, highly polluting ones are going into you know, the rest of the developing world. So it's not a completely pretty story. And also, could the numbers get faked, as you point out in the book? A absolutely. The and, and, and that's always troubling, because at some level, you're encouraged by what you're seeing, and uh, you become very enthusiastic. And then all of a sudden, you realize that, oh, actually, in this city, you know, they sprayed something on the, you know, the monitors uh, that are recording the air pollution levels so that they don't read properly. Uh, and then you recognize that, actually, all those statistics, we don't know whether they're good, whether they're bad. But, you know, Chinese people now have handheld monitors that they can use, right? On their iPhones, they've got apps, everything that can tell them what their real air quality is. So they know. So I don't want to spoil the ending of the book for those who haven't read it yet. But you you come out quite tough at the end of, of, of this book. You, you, you set out Xi Jinping's agenda as you see it. But your prescription is basically to counter and confront China where it seems to be not playing the game according to the rules that we've accepted to be the best ones. So what is the right way to deal with China? And are you, are you really advocating a kind of more muscular approach than we've seen before? So I think I try to be balanced. There are a lot of people in the China field now who simply want to balance against China. And, and I don't think that is the right prescription. Uh, I think there are opportunities, in fact, with Xi Jinping to leverage his ambition Right? When Xi Jinping step, steps out on the stage at Davos and says, you know, China's a leader of globalization, you know, that would be great. Uh, then we can hold China to account, right, for – because what is globalization? The free flow of capital, the free flow of information. So I think there are opportunities there. Xi Jinping wants to be a leader on the global stage. It would be great to partner, as we did with climate change. I think the United States and China can work together to address a lot of significant problems. Uh, but I do think that China has had a free ride – uh, in many respects. And, you know, now that its economy is it's the second largest economy, it's enormous, it shapes the world, its military is growing. It, Xi Jinping is, you know, making assertions uh, with regard to reunification, uh, you know, with Taiwan. Clearly, 
ramping up uh, Chinese presence in the South China Sea. These are significant new challenges, and the United States needs to understand what's coming down the pike. You know, in many respects, <laughs> I often think the United States is very good at playing checkers while Xi Jinping and, and Chinese leadership play chess. And we can't simply be responding, you know, back to every move that the Chinese make and putting us on their back foot. You know, we have to think strategically over the long term. And so I think that also means partnering with our allies. I think one of the things the Trump administration, at least President Trump himself, has gotten wrong is this idea that America first means we don't need to work with our allies more broadly. So I, I'm reassured by things like the free and open Indo-Pacific, which I, I also talk about, uh, where we work with India, Japan, and Australia, who share you know, values like political liberties, freedom of navigation, and free trade, to ensure that those values remain central you know, in global governance, uh, because that's not what China's bringing to the table. So what do you think of tariffs as a response to China bending the rules? I think the threat of tariffs is appropriate. Again, I think China has gone a long time promising change, right? promising opening, promising reduction of tariffs, and it doesn't happen. And the United States you know, is content, and many you know, in the United States business community have been content to say, okay, it's going to get better, you know, and the Chinese will say we're still developing. You know, it's only been 30 years since we've had an intellectual property rights law. Well, after 30 years, you ought to be able to enforce intellectual property rights protection. So actually, I'm a fan uh, surprisingly enough, of, of President Trump's initial gambit. I think it's, it says enough is enough. I just want to make sure that there's a strategy for de-escalation on the backside of this. The other question, the big question possibly with Xi Jinping, is how long can he stick around? I, I think there are really th three possibilities here, right? And, you know, one is that indeed, you know, Xi Jinping stays as long as he possibly can because he believes he is the only person who is capable of realizing his vision. The second is that he gets far enough down that path uh, where he feels as though the reforms that he's put in place, right, this more authoritarian and constrained and uh, party-dependent China, will not be reversed, that he's put in motion a set of reforms that the next leader is not going to come back and, and, and reverse back to Deng Xiaoping. And the third, of course, is that something goes wrong and that, uh, you know, there's an economic crisis, uh, there is, you know, uh, some kind of conflict in the South China Sea or over Taiwan where China is actually embarrassed. But something just falls flat. And Xi Jinping will be held responsible. By whom? Uh, by the Chinese people, by the rest of the Chinese leadership. I think one thing that we can't ignore and that I try to make clear in the book is that he has created fairly significant pockets of discontent. You know, I think it's tempting to assume that everybody stands behind Xi Jinping uh, because the Chinese media, you know, blasts the same message. But actually, if you look on the ground or you talk to people in China, you find, you know, everybody it could be retired PLA generals uh, who aren't getting their pensions. It could be uh, liberal intellectuals, certainly, who don't like the fact that he has now changed the rules of the game in terms of being president for life. Um, you can find entrepreneurs who don't like the fact that now the party is intruding into their business decisions. So there are significant segments of the Chinese uh, population uh, that probably wouldn't mind seeing Xi Jinping fall uh, and seeing a, rev a reversion to the more open policy of Deng Xiaoping. Thanks so much, Elizabeth, for joining us. And the third revolution, Xi Jinping and the new Chinese state, is out in May. 
Thanks for listening to The Exchange. This episode was produced by Ben Kellerman and Andrew D'Antonio. If you haven't already, sign up for our podcast on iTunes or, even better, check us out at breakingviews.com. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC.